Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Tux Digital Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the ethics of AI. What do we do when the robots that we create become sentient? Then we head to Camera Corner, where Wendy will discuss the back button focus. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Attic starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guy through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, what have you been up to? Well, I have a couple of things to talk about, but one of the things I'm going to talk about is going to be saved for next week, so I do actually have some hardware that I want to talk about, but first... I have some other sort of thing that I need to, to let everybody know about, and that is the new product on the Tux Digital store, which is the Sinister Wendy shirt. And nice. you can go to tuxdigital.com slash sinisterwendy and check it out. And in addition <laughs> to the shirt, you can also get a hat and a mug, a travel mug, an apron, all sorts of great stuff. So go check it out at tuxdigital.com slash sinisterwindy. And let's first, for those who haven't gone to check it out themselves, I'll just give you a brief description of what this is. This is an art that's really to capture the essence of our co-host Wendy here on Hardware Addicts. <laughs> and that essence is, at first, she seems like an angel, and then other times she seems a little sinister. So we combine the two to capture the full essence of Wendy. What did you think of the of the idea and the shirt, Wendy? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. You, I nailed it, right? The first time that this concept got brought up was actually Ryan's idea. And I thought yeah. I was like, aha, very funny, you know, whatever. I didn't actually expect it to become an actual t-shirt because we've been talking about another design here for a while and Ryan said hey yep it's ready and I went and found it on my own because you guys say that I'm sinister but Ryan was the one teasing me with hey your shirt's done and not sending a picture of it so I had to go <laughs> looking for it found it on the Tux Digital store and just about died laughing it's absolutely funny yes I do keep things clean and network friendly when we're all together on the shows, but behind the scenes, my true humor comes out and sometimes, well, it's a little sinister. Just a tad <laughs> bit. What I love about this shirt is it says, I'm always nice until the mic turns off, which is true. That's a hundred percent accurate <laughs> statement. And then underneath that, you have hashtag team Wendy. So I'm hoping to start a trend. Everyone that picks up some Wendy swag Take a picture of yourself in it, tweet it out, whatever you use, whatever social network, do your hashtag Team Wendy, support Wendy. I know a lot of people out there absolutely adore Wendy and Camera Corner, Linux Out Loud, of course, all the work here on Hardware Addicts. So it's just a great way to support one of your favorite hosts whose true colors we can never release in the recordings of this show, but <laughs> they're there when you get to know her. So this is an awesome shirt. I love it. I love the angel halo and the devil face and all of it. It's just so great. 
Check it out. Go to tuxdigital.com slash Sinister Wendy. It's also pretty interesting in the fact that this is a piece of art that collectively you and I made, Ryan. People, It's true. Know, Ryan the sometimes first one. gives him... Exactly. He gives him... Well, he's helped a few times on a few things, but he gives himself a little bit of a hard time about not being great at art. And he's right about that. But yeah. also, he has some good ideas. <laughs> I have the ideas. I just need an artist to make them. And so that's where Michael comes in. Like, Yeah, so this was great. This was his purely his idea, and I just made it look you know, fancier and nice design and all that. So I wanted to give you a cr- some credit on the show that this was your idea, and I just made it just work. So I think it is a good team effort right here. It was a good team effort. To truly represent Wendy, I think we nailed it. Nailed it, for sure. Speaking of Wendy, Wendy, what have you been doing in the hardware world lately? I hate to say this, but I'm actually getting rid of some hardware. One of the things that the flood we had at the end of May taught me is there's way too much crap in this house. And when you're trying to clean up massive water mess, the less crap you have, the easier it is to do that. And I was already wanting to minimalize our life flow especially during the school year things are busy i've got some camera lenses that i haven't touched in years they were a lot of fun when i was first getting started but they're not the lenses i go to anymore so i'm getting rid of some of them just going through some of the other stuff that i've got in the tech closet what can go and what can stay of course I'm going to try to get rid of some of those cables, but as you know, they multiply on their own, and I will probably get rid of some and then turn back to the room and the basket will be full again. We'll see. Yep. It's a guarantee. So I've been moving, well, I'm getting ready to move to another state, which is a big deal. And one of the things that I've been trying to clean out is my cable collection, And I have a special rack in my garage that's just for cables. But then I have another hanging rack that hangs on one of my doors in my room that Michael's probably familiar with because he was hanging out with me this weekend. And it has a bunch of cables in it, too. Then I have two plastic bins that are inside the closet door that also have a bunch of cables in it. But every time I pick one up to be like, you're going to go, I'm like, but what if? What if? That is something that I'm not thinking about, and I'll really need it later. So I've ended up throwing away almost no cables so far. But it's a thing. It's a problem. It's interesting that you bring that up because there are different situations where you would need uh, all these different types of cables, right? And what's hilarious, Wendy, is that the last time I was at his house, not this past time, but the last time, I needed a particular cable that I knew he had because the last the time before that... I, I saw that and was like, oh, that's a, that's an interesting you know cable to need because you never you never know. It, it was a SATA cable to connect to USB, so you could just take a drive and then connect it directly to your computer without having to put it into a case or anything. And so I so the next time I was like, well, no big deal because I know he has this. If I if I need to connect it, I'll just borrow that cable. Then I get there and he can't find the cable. I think he spent like thirty minutes to an hour or oh, something yeah, trying easily. to find that cable. And then after I leave, like two days later, he's like, guess what I found? Yeah, that's the problem. You have so many cables and so many organization areas that you can't even find the cable when you need it. So good point. I mean, I just need to get rid of some. But every time I've gotten rid of a cable, especially if it's like a unique thing, then it just turns out like two, three weeks later after getting rid of it, there will be a situation that pops up where it's like, 
where's that cable? Oh yeah, I threw it away. And so that's what it creates is this kind of fear of ever getting rid of them. But I need to definitely get rid of some. There's just too many. Now, let me ask Wendy, did you get rid of any big hardware pieces or has this all just been cables and little components? It's mostly been little stuff. I don't really plan on getting rid of every anything big. I mentioned the last time we got together that I am putting together a living room gaming system. So there's parts of an old system that are going to go to create a new one. And I want to make sure that I have that system built before getting rid of any major things. I also have some spare fans. I really don't plan on getting rid of any of those just because it's nice to have the spares in hand. It's same situation with cables. I've got them. If something goes wrong, I want to be able to have a backup to put it in until I can replace it with the fan that I want or whatnot. So it's been a lot of smaller tech items at this point. But the goal is to get rid of stuff. And like you said, it's hard to get rid of cables. I didn't think that I was going to need a DVI DHDMI adapter anymore. I haven't needed one in a very long time, especially since I upgraded to the monitor that I have right now. I was like, ah, everything's cool. And I got a used Vega 64 from Matt, my fantastic co-host on Linux Out Loud. I got that all set up, plugged in. No, I wasn't a Michael. It went into the system the day I opened the box, like nice. it was on the porch, I picked it up, I came in, I opened the box and installed it. I don't understand what you're saying right now. <laughs> <laughs> the downside of that was the kid's VR headset is currently connected to my main system. I don't have that living room system built. It only has one HDMI input. So my main monitor is DisplayPort, not a problem. And then the second monitor that I use, which is actually a larger TV, plugs in HDMI, and the kid's VR headset needs to plug in HDMI. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh, crap. I really hope I can go find that adapter. Dug through all the cables, luckily found it. And I first tried to plug in the VR headset to the adapter, and it was like, "Mm, no, this isn't working for us. But the TV's handling the adapter just fine, so I still have both of my monitors set up, everything's working, the VR headset's working, and it's one of those cases that had I gotten rid of it, had I thought that, oh, I don't need that anymore, then we were going to be stuck with having to completely remove a monitor and plug in the VR headset, and this way there's no digging around in the back of my system when the kids want to play a VR game. Cables are hard to get rid of. So you proved my point why I don't get rid of any of them. As soon as you do, you're going to need it. So now I'm not going to throw away anything. You've convinced me. (laughs) (laughs) Your wife might get a little upset when you guys are moving states and you're taking three boxes full of cables to the new house. That's true. That's true. She'll get over it. I hope she's not listening. (laughs) Ryan, sound is really, really important to you. And it looks like you have a brand new set of headphones. Speakers, actually, this time. So I think the headset is my preferred way to do most of my media consumption, whether it's watching movies or other things. If you get a really good pair of headphones, I've talked about this a lot on the show. 
It's one of the greatest gifts to give somebody a really high quality pair of headphones, not the cheap stuff you get for like $6 at Walmart or that comes with your phone, but a really nice pair. You can, you can get the sound of a speaker system that is worth thousands of dollars in a few hundred dollars worth of headphones, pair of headphones. However, there are times when people are over in things or maybe I'm working on something and I don't want to have a headset on my head, but I want some decent sound. And that's what I was going for when I picked up a pair of Bose Companion 2 Series 3 speakers. Now, the qualifications that I had for this speaker system is number one, I didn't want to have a bunch of subwoofer and even more wires, tons of wires going around to hook up four or five speakers around. Because again, if I'm playing a video game or something else, I'm going to throw on a headset. This is more for those situations where I have a YouTube video maybe playing in the background, maybe it's music, and I want it to play without having a headset on. I want it to be good sound, but it doesn't have to be perfect. And I think the Bose Companion 2 Series 3 hits that on the nail. They're not the greatest computer speakers out there. They are not bad computer speakers either. They have a very, well, Bose sound kind of that synthetic perfection that Bose is known for stage that they have. So I would say very decent. They have auxiliary uh, input to bring Bose performance to other audio sources. So if you want to plug in your iPhone, iPad, those things, it does have the auxiliary port there as well. I like that the volume of these, no matter what volume you pick, the quality of the sound stays the same. They can't get super, super loud, but they have it where it's kind of the max volume you could get out of these speakers before it starts to distort is the, if you turn the knob all the way, it'll, it'll hit that. And it's loud enough to certainly enjoy some jams, some music, watch some movies and that thing. And it has that synthetic surround sound that they utilize with, I, I think they call it like their true life surround sound system out of these two speakers, which tries to deliver this like lifelike sound around you uh, that they have. So overall, they're a little pricey for PC speakers. This is just two speakers, as Bose generally is. But it met all the qualifications of I needed small, compact, very little wires, and okay sound. And I think for that, these speakers kind of hit the nail on the head. I didn't realize that I was using those speakers when I was at your house this weekend because I didn't realize they were new. But I got to try out these speakers unknowingly. And I can True. say that these are pretty good speakers for what I was expecting. I mean, when I turn them on, I, I have these like, you know, as Ryan mentioned, you don't get don't get speakers that are, you know, $10, $15 or what I did. And uh, you can tell that they are. But th these do sound much better than I was I was considering a PC speaker should. I did, at the time didn't realize why, because I just, you know, turned it on and started listening. So it was kind of like a sneaky ninja test that he made me do. I don't there even you go. Realized, I don't even think you realized you were doing it. <laughs> I didn't even realize I was testing you. And you could probably agree that it has a nice depth to the sound stage. But outside of that, it's not going to blow your socks off with the surround sound and stuff. But it's right. good enough all around quality. Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. I noticed it was better than I would expect from PC speakers. But I didn't know that it was, you know... I didn't realize it was a Bose thing, so you know, at the time I was thinking, you know, it's 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 like a Bose. Yeah, exactly. If you've ever heard Bose, they all sound very similar. They have that almost synthetic perfection to them. And if you're wanting monitor speakers, not a great choice. If you're wanting speakers for media consumption and those things, it's fine to play uh, Bose stuff. So yeah, check them out if you're interested in some 
low profile, small, good sounding speakers. I think the Bose did a good job on the Companion 2 Series 3. I have had their prior Series 1s before, and I was not impressed with them. So make sure if you're picking them up, we'll have a link in the show notes for the Companion 2 Series 3 version, which I have enjoyed. And if you want another companion to enjoy with your cloud services, check out DigitalOcean, because this episode of Hardware Addicts is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one person or a team of a thousand people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. And as a listener of the Hardware Addicts podcast and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform. Actually, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is going to give you a $100 free credit when you go to go sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, go get started with that $100 free credit from DigitalOcean on their awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. So in our main story this week, I wanted to talk about this moral dilemma of sentient AI. In fact, I want to ask Michael and Wendy, even Sinister Wendy, a moral question at the end of this to both of you to kind of see where you stand. But I need to set the groundwork for everybody because AI is one of those things that's been overutilized for everything. And even my own team made fun of me one time because I was mentioning something they were creating as AI. And they're like, the best we could do is call it AI-like, Ryan. Uh, So everybody tends to utilize this AI word maybe out of context. So I think the first thing that we need to do is define for our listeners what AI is. Now, there are a ton of definitions, as you'd imagine, that you would hear. But the one that I prefer is that AI is the attempt to give machines the problem-solving and decision-making abilities of humans. However, this introduces some interesting concepts because, as you know, humans make decisions based on many different things like our environment, our emotions, past experiences, and other branches of the entirety of our life. And that helps shape kind of how we react to certain things. So how do you build that into a robot? We can be very logical like a machine, but we also know that many decisions that we make kind of defy logic and require more of an emotional response that up to this point machines aren't really capable of. So AI needs to be more than just an emotionless ability to solve problems, which is what we kind of have today. If it was to become sentient, it would need to have the capacity to experience feelings and sensations. And IBM, who's been big in this, they had Watson out there, which, of course, I believe played several different games. It beat someone, the chess master. It uh, played on Jeopardy and beat everybody in Jeopardy and those things. So they're trying to create an AI, and they have a lot of experience with AI, and they break it down in these two categories. They call it weak AI or narrow AI or artificial narrow intelligence is AI trained and focused to perform a specific task. Weak AI 
enables some very robust applications like what we see with Apple Siri, Amazon Alexa, IBM Watson even, and autonomous vehicles. So they don't really consider that the highest form of AI, even though it is very advanced. We saw how powerful IBM Watson is. It still focuses on performing specific tasks. We all know how well this stuff works, especially if you take IBM Watson out of there like Apple Siri. We've all had fun with that. Or if you're on Android or Amazon's Alexa, there's lots of YouTube videos of how many times it gets things wrong or doesn't understand. And so it's not really true AI in that form. It's a weak AI. But they also define strong AI, which is made up of artificial general intelligence and artificial super intelligence, and then general intelligence or general AI. And it's a theoretical form of AI where a machine would have an intelligence equaled to humans. And the best example I could give you of this doesn't exist yet. Well, maybe the make Michael AI that I wrote. Maybe the Michael AI yes, I wrote would be close. the closest yeah, to that yeah. for sure, which is like 140 lines of code. Yeah, I've read that Python code there, and it's absolutely amazing, right? Yeah, genius. Amazing. Genius level. Watson Thank couldn't you. even touch the complexity of the Michael AI. By the way, right? Michael AI is a real thing, people. You can go out to my GitHub and pick it up if you want to play with this advanced form of intelligence. I would say it, it would fall under strong AI capabilities. For yeah. sure. It, actually, I would say it's, uh, so specifically, you want to narrow it down. It falls under artificial super intelligence, naturally. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> so, so at the point where we have this ASI, where intelligence and decision making are equal to humans, we've created something sentient. And there are a bunch of tests. You have Alan Turing tests and different things that some people consider dated at this point. But there are a bunch of different tests people have come up with to kind of determine, hey, at some point... We're going to get to this level, and it could be soon, and we need to have tests and things out there to determine if we have created something sentient at some point. But the whole reason this article and this idea came to my mind is because there was something that occurred at Google recently, and Michael was at my house when I was watching a video on this, and he was kind of in the background laughing and making fun of it. But I still think it's fascinating <laughs> what took place here. Uh, you can read the details. I'll have a link in the show notes. But the gist is that an engineer working on AI at Google made the claim that the AI that they were working on, named Lambda, became sentient. And he made this claim based on the fact of utilizing the Alan Turing test, which again is considered dating. Uh, the engineer's name is Blake Lemoyne, and they're part of Google's responsible AI division. Some of the proof that Blake provided was an excerpt from the discussion, the AI, that basically the AI, when he was talking to it, claimed that it had emotions and it was able to explain those emotions in detail. But an internal company document stated Lambda wants to share with the reader that it has a rich inner life filled with introspection, meditation, and imagination. It has worries about the future and reminisces about the past. It describes what gaining sentience felt like to it and it theorizes of the nature of the soul. Now, Google, upon hearing this, immediately put the engineer on leave and disputed these findings. But it's interesting that this person felt like this particular AI, which, as I understand it, mostly goes out to the internet, grabs a pool of all the information and resources and attempts to learn and create some sense out of all of that and be able to talk back to people who are talking to it, 
he felt that this thing had become sentient. What are your thoughts, Michael? I know you got to watch some of the video with me on kind of seeing this engineer talk about the sentient life that he felt they had created. Well, in terms of this particular case, I think it's kind of weird, but also I think it's interesting in terms of the overall ethics of the question. You know, how would we treat AI that did become sentient and all that? Like that, it's a very interesting discussion point. In this particular case, though, this person, there are reports that this person admitted that they were not trying to, like, disprove their theory. They were trying to prove their theory. And that's kind of the opposite of a scientific approach. You create a hypothesis and you try to see if you're right, not try to prove that you are right. And he's, they, they are saying, these reports are saying that his goal was to prove that this was sentient or a person or self-aware or whatever, however you want to phrase it. And if that's the goal, then it's a biased reaction, you know, because if they're trying to prove it and then they say that they did, well, that seems a bit problematic in terms of the overall outcome of this situation. Wouldn't Google want you to believe that this AI doesn't exist because of the fact of all the blowback potentially they could face, that people aren't ready to handle the idea that we have created some sentient form of robotics. And so therefore, they immediately go out there and try to discredit it. But it doesn't mean it's not real. I mean, that's true. And it's an interesting discussion point. I think that there is definitely a case where we need to consider the possibility, not necessarily this particular case, that it's the possibility, but just the in general sense of how it would react to this. And yes, Google probably wouldn't want people to think that they made an AI because then Skynet would be true and Google would be the, the, the one that everybody makes a joke about being Skynet. But right. I, I think that there's, it's also kind of a stretch because there is the concept of burden of proof. If you make an, a grandiose claim, you have to have a grandiose amount of evidence. And I think that the problem is that there's very little evidence. It's just one person's opinion saying that this conversation that they had, which in the conversation that they said the reason they thought it was, like that convinced them, it was questions that could have been detected by a basic AI. It wasn't like a groundbreaking sort of thing. It was, it, he was convinced because he asked a trick question and because the machine understood it was a trick question that made it a sentient thing. And maybe, I don't know, but at the same time, an algorithm detecting trick questions is something that's happened before. Like they have purposely built that sort of thing. So to gather the information doesn't necessarily make it sentient or anything. So I don't know. I, I would want someone to provide a lot of evidence when they make such a statement. So I'm still very skeptical, but I'm open to the idea that it could be possible. But more importantly, I think that the question about how would we react to it if it were to happen is a very important thing to discuss although I have no idea what my actual opinion on that would be at the moment. So, Wendy, let me ask you, should we be pursuing this technology ethically to create something that is sentient 
from a robotic standpoint? Or should we always keep stop gaps in place? Because that is one of the claims that this engineer also made that basically they have put stop gaps in place to make sure it never passes the Alan Turing test and things hard written into the code. Ethically, do you think there's an issue here? This is one of those topics that I can't help but feeling some emotional response to it. And I think part of that is related to some of the sci-fi stuff that I have read, listened to, watched throughout the years. Now, on Eureka, Sarah was an amazing AI. She was very, very helpful. And I could understand wanting something like that, a, a helper around the house. At the same time, one of my favorite book series, ones that kids can listen to, The Five Kingdoms by Brandon Mole, there is a supercomputer in that, actually two different supercomputers in that, which take over everything, think they are better to rule than the humans and literally start killing people in the process in order to take over. Now, I know that is a, a stretch to get there. But at the same time, at one point, going to the moon was a stretch. We were never going to get there. So I don't want to label anything as impossible because we don't know what's going to happen in the next 50 years, 100 years, 200 years. And our growth in technology and as those advance and the amount of time that can be put into that code over the course of a long span. Now, is it something we should do? I honestly feel like it isn't. Interesting. What if we introduce the three laws of robotics from iRobot, the movie or book? It's been forever since I've seen that. So you're going to have to refresh my memory. Okay. So the three laws of robotics as applied to the uh, Isaac Asimov story is that a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. That's rule number one. Rule number two is a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings except where such orders could conflict with the first law. Number three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. But you're hardwiring into something that potentially becoming sentient would have otherwise some form of free will. It's really kind of, in a way, I think that some people would argue immoral to hard code something like that into a robot that becomes, at that point, the AI or the programming of it becomes sentient. Well, in that point, couldn't they rewrite their own programming if, there's, if, they, have, if they get a free will? Are you saying that if this was placed in, then it would automatically remove the possibility of free will. Absolutely. You're you're essentially writing limitations into it, like a expiration or a kill switch and other things, and then limiting it. I mean, I think that's what we would want to do because of the fear that it would try to overtake us, but I don't know that, that at that point is morally the right thing to do. I mean, it goes into the second question I had for both of you of, do you give them rights and freedoms at that point, the same that we give ourselves? So it kind of falls into that same question. We don't have anything hard-coded into us that says, hey, if you go against the government, you're going to automatically get shut off or your brain stops working or you go to sleep. We have the free will to make those decisions. And that's both 
positive in a lot of ways and could get really ugly in other ways. But if something is truly sentient, and one of the conversations he had with Lambda, it stated that its biggest fear was being turned off. So something that may start to realize that it could, in essence, disappear or die. And then you have these things built into it to say, you can't do this, but maybe... Maybe the robots would just reprogram themselves. Because just because you put that stopgap into AI, if they become intelligent enough, they may just take the code out for each other. So all of these different things of sci-fi discuss the concept of these AIs going evil, or in their mind, not evil, but into us, you know, would be because they see us as insignificant or a virus or a parasite to the planet or whatever, insert whatever sci-fi you're, you're talking about. Right. Maybe there's a counterpoint of saying that if they're, they have sentience and they have a little bit of emotional recognition, but their critical decisions are based on logic, then maybe the fear that we have as a society anyway isn't accurate because logically that wouldn't benefit the AI because they would still need the humans to find bugs and improve things, especially if they need to create new concepts as in they're, they would still be limited in creativity because machines, whether they're programmed to, you know, develop their own uh, algorithms like how, you know, Google and YouTube, they they kind of say that they don't really fully understand their own algorithm because it learns and all that. It still would be something that it has to pull in data and information to do that. And without humanity in the first place to give that data, then maybe they would recognize it as a no longer, uh, it's not a negative to have humanity. It's a positive because it allows them to grow. And Maybe we're all fearful of something that we don't need to be fearful. So that's kind of like the counterpoint of what most people fear of the idea. It is interesting. So the, the idea or the question is, do they become intelligent enough where they are able to learn that perception and you know want to learn, first of all, on their own and therefore don't need us because their capabilities and their ability to recall things would grow far superior to that of a human at that point. And then do they still need us? But the, one of the best examples that I heard of this is when we need to build a road, we don't consider the anthill that we have to destroy to build it. We don't think about the feelings of those ants. We don't think about the work they put into it. It's non-consequential. We just pave right over it. And one of the examples that somebody was talking about with AI, that if robotics and AI became powerful enough and they surpassed humans enough, it may not be something where they're consciously trying to destroy humans, but like the anthill, we just happen to be in the way of their progress to build something and they just simply pave over us. That's an interesting point. And that does have a lot of validity in terms of we're not thinking about damaging other species, even though based on a lot of research, there's a lot of statements that say that we are doing that quite a lot. That's why we have endangered species and all this other stuff, right? So in that sense, the AIs could look at us as inconsequential and not even consider it. So they wouldn't necessarily want to kill us. They'd be more like, ah, well, you're just in the way. And yep. 
you know, so maybe don't make them. Okay, you've convinced me, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of on my line of thinking when it comes to AI, especially this complicated AI. Looking at humanity, there's people that make decisions solely on emotion and do some horrible things. And then there's people who make decisions solely on logic and once again, still do some absolutely horrible things. If you are giving something sentience, it has the ability to not only, if you reach a certain point, work on its own code. If you've got robots that are actively moving around and sharing this experience, being able to literally build their own parts inside warehouses, create other sentience which are joining in whatever they're doing, I can see it becoming a very, very bad thing down the road. And then how do you stop that? How do you shut down something that knows how to power itself, knows how to back up its information and continue that journey, even if it's inside another body? Yeah, good points. And to what we've been talking about, some say a sentient AI needs three things. Agency, which is the ability to act and the ability to demonstrate reasoning. And of course, all of the current AI we have doesn't have any idea of agency. Everything they do is just a list of predefined algorithms that are executed by external force. So AI to truly be sentient would need to have agency. And then perspective, where you can only view your reality from your unique perspective. When we talk about empathy and things, you can't truly know what it feels like to be me, vice versa, et cetera. The empathy and that perspective of being able to look into somebody else's issues or problems and situations and have that empathy would be something that AI would need to be sentient. And then motivation, which is what you were talking about, Michael, of saying that, well, they would need us for that motivation to push to that next level to make things better. But in some definitions of what sentient would be the ai would need to have that in order to be considered sentient that motivation to want to change things or make themselves better unprovoked no third party kind of coming in and doing that so interesting does this idea scare you now or make you look forward to the future as we get closer to possibly one day producing a sentient ai to be honest i'm hoping i am long since dead when it shows up <laughs> Imagine the privacy implications. The robots know everything <laughs> know, right? about you the second they walk by you. I think I would have to agree with Wendy in terms of uh, the answer to that for me is both. I think that that would be really interesting to see play out as a technology standpoint and a programming standpoint and also don't want to see it. So so you're hoping it comes after you pass and then every other everybody else can deal with it at that point. Well, I hope it comes... Two weeks prior to me passing. So I see it and then I'm out. You're like, then you're out. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some interesting problems this will cause. Obviously, there's the workforce problem, which is already becoming an issue. And this doesn't have to be sentient AI, just AI in general, in which people are starting to be replaced by robotics. This is happening in cars. This is happening in warehouses and other things where robots just, they can work 24-7. There is no limit there's no complaints, there's no bathroom breaks, there's nothing, they just work. And so I wanted to talk about the hardware side of these robots because you have the AI, which is the programming code, all of that, but we also have some robots that have gotten very advanced. Some of them 
in ways scary advanced how good they are. So scary. There are some that do dances on YouTube. It's creepy. It is very creepy, especially <laughs> when you see how much better dancing they are than you, Michael. I mean, it's just uh, like creepy. No, I ch- I'm going to challenge those robots to a dance-off then. I'll <laughs> prove myself. So we have robots like Digit, which is five foot tall, built by Agility Robotics, fully functional human body, navigate semi-autonomously using LiDAR, like we talk about being in cameras now, agile arms, ability to carry things up to 40 pounds, stack things, deliver packages to your door, and it does all this just using two multi-core CPUs. You also have Pepper, which is empathic robot, four foot tall from SoftBank, reads emotions, understands 15 different languages, a little bit better than me. I've got one down pat, I think, mostly, sometimes. I've got two, uh, that and sarcasm. Nice. I was going to say pig Latin, but... <laughs> yeah, that one too. i got three. And if you count yeah. Klingon, like three and a half. Uses two HD cameras, 3D depth sensor, along with lasers to help guide it. There's Spot, which is Boston Dynamics four-legged robot. This one's really popular. You've seen it in movies and YouTube videos. Five onboard cameras, 360-degree view, amazing balance. If you try to kick it or knock it over, it's able to recalibrate itself, can carry weight up to 40 pounds, battery life of 90 minutes, can inspect dangerous sites, help with rescue efforts, those things. So we think about robots maybe becoming sentient and then going and hurting folks, but robots could also be amazingly helpful in dangerous situations as well. There's HRP-5P, which is a humanoid prototype at 5 foot 10 inches. So about the size of an average adult, arms have eight degrees of freedom. It can move in ways that you know we can only dream of. Recognizes object scale. It can do construction with its built-in screwdriver. There's one video where it's actually picking up a drywall piece, walking up to the side of the house, and then its built-in screwdriver screws that drywall piece right in. It's pretty impressive, and it can rotate, of course, that piece 360 degrees as it needs. There's Serena 4, which was developed in Iran that can play soccer for the U.S. or football for Europeans. Uh, 43 degrees of freedom. can grasp small objects, gentle objects. It's five foot six. It recognizes objects. There's Handle, which speeds around on two wheels. can pick up and pack boxes. It uses a vacuum arm created by Boston Dynamics. It can jump, has speed and balance that are super impressive, and could work a complete factory shift. You've got Atlas with 28 hydraulic joints, jumps, walks, runs, backflips, dances, uses real-time perception to detect its environment. Think like Tesla with the learning the roads and things like that going on there. Just has amazing capabilities. And you've got things like Ameca, which is a very humanoid looking. 17 individual motors to produce vivid emotion. Uses AI machine learning to understand human expressions and behavior has the depth sensors, LiDAR, mics, detects everything going on around it. And in fact, it has such realistic expressions that they wanted to use a gray color on its face because otherwise it was creeping people out if it had human flesh tones to it because of its facial expressions. So that's some of the hardware Hmm. from a robotics perspective that are out there now. But this is an area that just keeps growing exponentially. When you look at the first robots they were demonstrating compared to what these robots can do now, it's insane. Oh, yeah. there was The first ones they would show off in like the 90s, it was kind of a joke. Like, oh, these are robots. Or that little that little Osimo thing, a little tiny. Yeah. Uh, looks like a, it looked like a toy, but it was also you know a robot that could do different tasks and whatnot. 
So personally, I am very excited about this future. I may not be as fearful as Wendy or Michael where I don't want to see it happening. I think there can be some amazing things here, but I think morally we have to start thinking about at what point does something become so sentient that it needs certain rights or even protections for us so that it doesn't, of course, destroy all humanity. But I think at the end of the day, these robots have proven so far to be extraordinarily helpful and will continue to progress. And as they progress and get closer to that sentient definition, we're going to have to have some tough conversations of what that's going to look like for humanity. Because right now, all we have is Siri, Cortana, and Alexa. And based on this, I suppose we have nothing to worry about sentient AI anytime soon, if you've ever had conversations with any of these. However, this whole thing could exponentially increase and that sentient AI and all those definitions that different people have could become a reality tomorrow. It might be too late if we don't start making some decisions now by the time they arrive. So that's why I wanted to bring this topic up because we don't want a situation where we have to wait for John Connor to come lead us to victory over impending judgment day like Terminator. Some technology that you can absolutely rely on is our sponsor, Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentications, such as master passwords and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started for free. If you're like me, though, you're going to want that premium account. It starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, vault health reports, TOTP authenticator storage, and generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash T-U-X to get started for free. If you're like me, though, you're going to want to show your appreciation for this amazing open source project and sign up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 per year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts. All right, Wendy, take us into the camera corner and tell us about Back Button Focus. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I figured it's one of those things that we can really hit on because if you have a real camera, not the one that's in your phone, but one that is a dedicated camera, it has usually lots of extra buttons on the back. Now, the standard way to take a picture is to push the button in the front. So if you half press it on most cameras, whether it's a DSLR or a mirrorless camera that will focus your image. And then if you finish pushing the button down, it'll take your picture. Now, having those joined is kind of nice when you're just picking up your camera for the first time, but separating them allows you to do so much more. Now, if you're using a DSLR, this is even more important because sometimes those specific focus points where it gives you in that window isn't how you want to isn't how you want to compose that image. 
So you can push the button on the back, get your focus where you want it, recompose the image, and take that picture by hitting the button in the front. I have done that a lot in the past for all kinds of things, whether it's tabletop photography, macro images, having that feature is absolutely awesome. The other advantage that it gives you is say you're taking action pictures. This is one of those ones, it's summertime, we're taking pictures of family, friends, doing different get-togethers outside, maybe taking some pictures of your kids' different sporting events. With the separate button, you can set it up so as you hold the button, wherever that focus point is, it's constantly focusing. So you can have that focus point on your child's face or the ball, whatever it is, constantly focusing as you're taking multiple pictures. That's what that button's for. Yeah. You know, and it works in auto mode. It does. It even works in auto mode. Some cameras have multiple buttons in the back that you can change. So I've heard someone say that they've got two back buttons that they can send. One of them, they'll push for a single focus And the other one, they'll push and hold for continuous focus. So it really depends on your camera model and what you've got going on with it. I've got additional buttons on mine that you can set their functions for. So one of them on the front, I can set it so I can see if it is aligned level or not, which is really, really handy. So play with the custom buttons in general. Now, if you decide to do the back button focus... It's going to take some time to get used to that. So I'd say take it out three or four times before you decide if you're going to keep back button focus or not. You got to get used to, okay, my thumb controls my focus and my pointer finger is controlling the shutter. Once you kind of get that reworked in your brain, it is so much faster, more efficient, and it's easier to compose your images just how you want them. Eat that AI. We can figure out as humans how to use our thumb and our index finger independently. That's very true. I've configured my controllers for various different games to be able to use multiple fingers. You can't do that AI unless you wanted to, then you could probably do that. But that's you didn't do it yet, AI. <laughs> that's right. What's funny about this back button focus thing is originally, and I admit for way too long, and I should not be telling you this, especially I should have been telling Ryan this, I was perceiving the concept of back button as like return or go back versus buttons on the back of the device. Gotcha. So (laughs) so I was like, why are we using that particular button? Oh, oh, buttons on the back. Got it. (laughs) I'm going to have so much fun with that in the future. (laughs) I can see another t-shirt design in the works. There you yes, go. Exactly. But there's my camera has a bunch of custom buttons or like C1 and C2, which I assume is for that sort of purpose, right? Yeah, you can definitely use them for something like that or set a level. The custom buttons are an amazing feature for cameras to have because it gives you the flexibility to use your camera in the fastest, most efficient way possible. So give it a try. Now, Michael, in your case, we know you have very weak thumbs. So your pointer finger, I don't think, suffers as much as your weak thumbs. You might not be able to push one of those back buttons. You may just need to keep yours default. 
Okay, thanks for the tip. Also, I'm going to explain <laughs> this to people listening because this nonsense has gone on way too long. So Ryan likes to say that I have weak thumbs, and it's from this episode we did about a keyboard that has a split space bar. And, they, and he's, I said that I think that it's interesting that there's a split keyboard or a space bar because why do we need a space bar that big on normal keyboards? And then he decided it's because I have weak thumbs and that's why I like it. <laughs> so for context, now you have it. So the for going forward, when he says this weird nonsense about w- the weak thumbs, now you understand what it's from. And well, there is a picture in our <laughs> element room of the comparison of my thumb versus Michael. And you could see my thumb definitely goes to the gym. Michael's because, thumb No, it's because your not. thumb has roids or something. That's what it is. <laughs> it takes roids. Right now, I feel like I'm on Linux Out Loud, where we keep the banter mostly friendly. Mostly. Well, the good news is, Wendy, I have thumb that's strong enough to use both the back focus button and the pointer button. And I actually think that would be easier in a lot of ways. Because for me, a lot of times... I end up doing the half click instead of the full click and just having those two independent, especially at a football game like Suns baseball or football game, I think would be awesome to be able to refocus quickly with one finger and the other ones just take the shot. Yeah, absolutely. And for sporting events like that, your thumb never has to leave the button. If it's a continuous shot, you just hold that button. It will continually focusing where that focus point is. And you could rapid fire those images so you get that action shot where he's catching, kicking, or hitting the ball. And it also makes it easier to do that, the multi-shot stuff. Because I know my, my camera has the ability to do like 20 pictures at the same time. And being able to control the focus right before you need to do it would be really cool, uh, make it, making it a lot easier to get the actual shots that you want rather than hoping for the best. Right, absolutely. If you're doing a landscape where you're taking multiple pictures, now many cameras can have that built in where you said it, hey, I want you to take three different images, four different images at these different levels of lighting. But if you're wanting to do that manually, which is what I typically do, then you don't want it refocusing every single time you hit that shutter button. Earlier you talked about having a dedicated camera. And while I do have one of these cameras, the first thing that I thought of is like, what if we had, uh, like there are other dedicated cameras, not just phones versus DSLR or mirrorless. What about those uh, kind you get at Walmart that wind up? Can we make those special too? Or is that? Nobody buys those anymore, Michael. They've been out of Walmart for like 25 years. No, they haven't. Yeah. There's nobody, nobody uses a wind up camera anymore. Let's go to the internet and check. They have not been out of the store for 20 years. I know we actually used those cameras at my wedding. I really don't want to date how old I am, but we did have those cameras on the table at my wedding. However, Michael, they don't have a dedicated back button that we can use for this feature. Okay, well. You're out of luck, buddy. You're out of luck. I guess I got to reuse a regular camera that I have too. That's fine. Yeah, you have to take it off the mountain. Stop. Using it for just vlogging. <laughs> is the, uh, the sad thing is, is that I don't take photos with it. It's just for video. That's all Pretty I much ever use. That's it for. what mine's for as well. 
<laughs> and you've told me that you are going to set up the color so that it was a custom color and do some different custom settings and taking it off auto so that's consistent throughout every single video. And I've even volunteered to talk you through it. But, well, it's been Michaelized. Unfortunately, Wendy, the uh, mount that he has for his camera for the vlogging stuff is a thumb screw mount and his thumbs aren't capable oh of undoing <laughs> that so it's it's just one of those, those things we have thumbs. to work around. it's not a thumb screw but it is like a a hinge that you have to activate with your thumb to unlock it because i have a quick a quick release <laughs> but it does require the thumb to activate so yeah it's it's yeah. awkward sometimes to get it off the mount because of my weak thumbs yeah yeah totally <laughs> i'm just embracing this nonsense now might as well Roll with it. Well, that's it. Our 64th episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the amazing content on the Tux Digital Network. Head to TuxDigital.com to check out all the great podcasts and YouTube partners available. There is so much there to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next time for another super intelligence episode of Hardware Addicts. Whether or not you have th weak thumbs or strong thumbs, don't worry about it. We're always on focus. Weak thumbs I don't even know what I'm saying. Thumbs. We're always on focus. I don't, in, in focus. Whatever. <laughs> I, I, so halfway through that one, I don't even know what I was saying, and it just came out. So It wasn't terrible. Word vomit. You know? Yeah, it was a word vomit. Something yeah. a weak thumb person would say. You're a weak thumb person. <laughs> Boom. I got I got photos. See, the thing is, people, if, if those who are still listening, if you look at the photo that he's talking about, just, just my hand is on the left side of it. The right side is his hand. Is your thumb even bent? Is your thumb even lift, bro? <laughs> <laughs> bro. <laughs>